I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author Sandro Galea, MD. His new book is Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time. During the COVID-19 pandemic, public health was subject to endless debate, but much of that debate was clouded by partisan politics and right-wing denialism. With the emergency phase of COVID in the past, now is the time for us to honestly reflect on how public health was managed in the face of its greatest challenge, a once-in-a-century global pandemic. As Sandro Galea explains, public health initiatives have saved countless lives since 2020, but its leading institutions became mired in politics, lost the public trust, and strayed from some of their core tenets. Acknowledging that the public health establishment lost sight of its core values, isn't to betray a political party or militant anti-vaxxers. It is merely to recognize that a thoughtful review of the last three years is a vital step toward a healthier and more trusted system. Sandro Galea, MD, is dean of Boston University School of Public Health and has been named a epidemiology innovator by Time, a top voice in healthcare by LinkedIn, and is one of the most cited social scientists in the world. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Dr. Galea. Sandra. Thank you for having me on, Catherine. Great to have you on. Okay, where do we begin? Okay, so COVID 2020, uh, what happened during that period of time? What, what, why have we become so, I guess, polar opposites in terms of how we view public health and public health is not trusted now. My first guess was was all about trust. We were talking that this is a mm-hmm. society in which <laughs> trust has really gone down the tubes. And uh, within that context is, is the public health system. So uh, let's begin with that, yeah. I assume. Yeah. Well, you know, COVID, let's start with COVID. COVID was a tragedy. It was a national tragedy. It was a global tragedy. And uh, you know, more than a million Americans died during covid uh, more than 7 million people died around the world, and we should never forget that, that ultimately COVID uh, was a real human cost and a human tragedy to us. Uh, the second point is that public health and people working in public health did heroic work during COVID, and uh, COVID would have been much worse were it not for the work of literally tens of thousands of people working in public health, all the way from from early detection of disease, preventing transmission to the development of vaccines, all of these were products of the hard work of public health. So I want to start by noting that uh, I have deep admiration for the work of public health during the time of COVID, and I think the country owes those who work in public health a real debt of gratitude. Now, moving on to the pieces of the book, the book says we're now four years out from the start of acute COVID, and now that we're past the acute COVID phase, it's time for self-reflection. That I think it is not a contradiction to say that public health did extraordinary things during COVID, and there were also other things that we did that we should reflect on and think about how we may do better. And what I'm trying to do with the book is to push that self-reflection from a place of deep respect for the work of public health, but also to say, what are the things that we should learn from the moment? And, you know, you, you Catherine, you uh, prefaced your comments by talking about trust. And I, um, I start the book by talking about trust, by talking about the loss of trust in institutions broadly, but in public health in particular. And I use the, the story at the start of the book of a bakery close to my house. And there's a bakery I like going to. 
And one day, I go to the bakery, and there's a sign on the door. And the sign on the door says, we know that mask wearing is no longer required by the health commissioner, etc., but we still want you to wear a mask. Now, what I challenge the reader is to say, can you imagine a time before COVID when a bakery, which presumably doesn't have its own medical advisor, doesn't have its own public health experts, would put up a sign that says, we know the health experts say X, but we essentially don't trust them and we say Y. And, and I see that as a sign of just one small sign of this lack of trust in what authorities were saying, what public health was saying. And I challenge the reader to say, given that this is new, this is a different approach of the world, it should push all of us who are responsibly thinking about how public health should do its, its work better, push us to say, why is that? And what can we do better in the future? I think one of the things with public health, I think most people or the general population or the masses really don't understand what public health does. That We're a country, we are such a a healthy country, a strong country because of public health. I mean, if you look on, on television or, or on the net or on social media, the uh, medical institutions or the, the medical treatments that we get that are publicized, are this, uh, and I use say sexy, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, surgery and, and uh, you know, and <laughs> transplants. And, and people know more about that kind of medical help uh, than they do about what does public health really do. I think you really have to start with the basics that in countries yeah, where there uh, isn't public health, if you've traveled around the world, and my I have, uh, people are don't have the same quality of life that we have in the United States because of public health. I mean... You're completely correct. And, and I've written about this uh, in, uh, in other books and other contexts that uh, one of the challenges of public health is that it's invisible, of course. Public health is most successful when everybody is able to live healthy lives and realize their ambitions, their dreams, their aspirations. That's when public health is doing its job well. And you're correct that when you, if you go on Amazon and you Google medical books, you know, you get dozens and dozens of books about surgery, about trauma care, about um, nutrition, self-improvement, things like that. And you don't see hardly anything about public health. And in many respects, that's not a bad thing. Now, in COVID, what happened, of course, public health all of a sudden was in the forefront. All of a sudden, everybody was talking about public health. All of a sudden, everybody's talking about epidemiology. And uh, that was that's a good thing in terms of awareness. But part of what happened was that public health was so thrust into the spotlight in a time of intense political, social divisions in the country. And being thrust into the spotlight almost inevitably resulted in public health being swept into some of these larger cultural debates that society was having and public health being seen as partisan and being seen as affiliated with one side or another, and I use the word side almost within air quotes because I'm not sure there should have been sides to begin with. So in the moment of public health's prominence, it was a fraught moment and public health got caught up in the churn of that moment. And that is in part what inspired me to write this book to say, let us hold a mirror to ourselves and say, what is it that we did that we would reconsider doing in future? What what would what are some of those things that we have to, as you say, sit down and look? We did yeah. really good things, great things, but now we have to sit down, take a look, become most more self-aware. 
what 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 did we do wrong, or or what could be improved? Yeah. On? Well, I'll I'll start with uh, and I'll, I'll just talk about three things broadly speaking. I think number one is our communication. I, I think uh, we we communicated using a, uh, a let's call it a pre-social media playbook, and uh, that communication in the past. Uh, it, it suggested that we should communicate with certitude because people need to hear clear answers. But in a, something like COVID, when when facts were changing so quickly, it became very clear very quickly that communicating with certitude was a, was a recipe for us being wrong again and again and again. And social media, of course, amplifies that because social media is is a dispositive medium. It's you know you say one thing and it's there in 100 characters, and it seems like the definitive answer, which then makes it very difficult when the data have shifted and the answer has shifted the, the next day. So the first thing is learning to communicate and be honest with people about the things that we know and we don't know, recognizing that people, the population, can handle uncertain. The population can handle being told we do not know because things are evolving quickly and, and being particularly cautious about communicating through social media in a way that suggests false certitude when, in fact, the facts are much more fluid and data is much evolving. So that's number one. The second thing is, which is linked to the first, of course, is being honest about the fact that whenever we're making decisions, public policy decisions, there are always trade-offs that Science is just one input into public policy decisions. You know, one of the things that uh, public health leaned into strongly in time of COVID was this mantra that emerged, which is follow the science. Well, the problem with follow the science is that it suggests that science leads to a clear answer that a policymaker should do. But policy is not just about science, right? Policy is about social values. It's about other needs in society that are beyond science. You know, one perfect example of this was the decision-making around opening schools or keeping schools closed. Well, the, the, the truth is that the risk of transmission of COVID by children was low, not zero, but low. So the science, if one, if one follows the science to its logical extreme, which is to say that we should do everything possible to reduce all the risk of transmission of the virus, then yes, schools should have stayed closed. However, schools staying closed was clearly associated with kids not learning with kids falling behind, particularly kids in schools that are not as well-resourced, kids in, in communities of color. And by, quote, following the science, pushing to the extreme our need to reduce viral transmission to as close to zero as possible, we were sacrificing these other social goods, which is making sure that kids are learning. And that is a trade-off. That is a public trade-off. And I think it's on us to allow the space for those kind of conversations to say that, yes, there is some risk of transmission, but that needs to be weighed against other social goods that we're trying to promote. And who's making those area. decisions as you're, I mean, as you're just, you know, those are the kinds of decisions that are good to make. But during a time crisis, which COVID was, um, and I'm assuming it will happen again, uh, who, who's making those decisions? Yeah. Are, are politicians well, making, and that was, I think, the general public, are the politicians making the decisions mm -hmm. or are the physicians making the yes. decisions? Who's deciding uh, whether you keep no, the it's school? A, it's, yeah. it's an excellent question, because, of course, this brings us to 
the political landscape when COVID unfolded, right? Because, yes, we as a society elect politicians to make these kind of decisions. One of the challenges that public health faced, and I want to be very careful in my thinking, that some of the some of the problems with how public health acted was in direct response to these political pressures, is that in 2020, there was a president who was quite vocal in, in, uh, in essentially veering close to denialism about the existence of COVID and in, in proposing and get putting his weight behind treatments that we knew were not treatments and, in fact, they were harmful to people. So there was a good reason for public health to be skeptical that politicians who were in charge at the time were not going to be discharging their responsibility to balance these trade-offs carefully. And I think that is in part what pushed public health into a corner and pushed us to act the way we act. You know, I've done other writing where I've argued that one of the things that we need to think about in future pandemics, and the book is forward-looking. I really try hard. I'm not looking back and saying we should have done this better. I'm really saying uh, learning from the past, what should we do in future, is that we need to think about creating a system where one person, one clear person, is in charge of the full response um, in a pandemic, bringing together people from across agencies and ultimately making decisions. And we we never had that as a country. Well, I'm thinking today, what about uh, we have politicians making decisions about women's health, <laughs> whether or not uh, they can have an abortion or not have an abortion or whether they're sick enough to have an abortion, not doctors making those decisions or physicians, uh, which all is connected to public health, I think, Uh we're sort of, to me, yes, going. No, the, it, it, yeah, and, and you're, you're of course touching on touching on another issue around trust, which is loss of trust and perhaps unearned loss of trust in the political system and in politicians. And uh, it is, in, in many respects, I don't really address that much in the book because that's that's not my field. I'm, uh, I'm talking about public health because I speak from within public health. I I leave it to others to write about the the problems of the political system that uh, that really hindered our COVID response, but. I think it's reasonable to recognize that um, we do have a loss of trust in political establishments with good reason because of the hyper-partisanizing around how we think as a country. And, you know, in part, my third concern with public health's function, which I would like us to avoid in future, is public health became seen as allied with one political party versus another. And that, that is problematic for public health because public health serves the public. Public health serves all the people and not just half the people. And we saw this unfold, right, in many states where for some states, for example, wearing a mask became seen as a, as a partisan symbol, that if you're wearing a mask, you're a, you're a Democrat versus a Republican. And, uh, and, and it is a pity that that happened. And I think public health needs to work to not allow that to happen in the future, because ultimately people's health, people's lives suffer if a proportion of the population does not listen to public health because of a notion that public health is allied with one party only. Yeah, I'm thinking about, you know, as a social worker doing a lot of hospital social work many years ago, I mean, in working in a TB ward, you had to wear a mask. You didn't want to, <laughs> one wore a mask when you went into, when you were counseling or talking to a, a patient with TB. I mean, it just, to me, I, I don't know why, it just reminded me of, as you say, it became a political issue, whether you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask, but you go in, I mean, maybe this isn't connected, but you go into an operating room and the physicians wear a mask uh, because they don't 
want to, they're not breathing all over the patients if they are sick. Or I mean, it, it, just to me. No, it, it, is, it is very much connected. I mean, look, the, the, the evidence is very clear that individual wearing a mask as an individual will reduce your risk of transmitting what you have in your lungs to other people and your risk of acquiring things from other people. The whole science of masking became politicized in no small part because of the nuances in the science that then we had a hard time communicating. The question was whether or not mask wearing in the whole population reduces spread in the whole population, which is different than you as an individual making individual choices. And this is one, just one example of where our communication should have been better and should be better in future. Do you think in terms of communication, I mean, and I don't think that maybe at the end of, of the um, uh, crisis, the COVID crisis, uh, they started doing this, but boy, there's such an opportunity on television to really put together uh, public health uh, PSAs uh, that could impact just what you're talking about, that have a great effect on how, how the, the understanding of, of the population for public health and what needs to be done, whatever the crisis is. I mean, and I don't think that's utilized enough. Uh, I don't know whether that has to do with politics or funding yeah. or what. <laughs> I, think, but, I yeah. think it has to do with all of that. I think, I think it's yes to all of that. Yes, I do think that um, we need to reimagine, rethink how we communicate. We need to, whether or not it's through use of television, through use of social media, which is obviously here to stay, and learning how to use these uh, means of, new means of communication like social media. One of the, one of the things that uh, challenged us during COVID is that it was the first national crisis that we lived through as a country through the lens of social media. Like we had never had an event like that before where the, the country got its information through social media. And I think as a result, we did not quite know how to use the tool. And the tool is changing so rapidly. Like for example, you see in the past two years, the rise of TikTok that uh, wasn't really a factor even five years ago. And that requires different ways of communicating, frankly, than the way I was raised and taught in public health. And part of this is teaching the next generation to learn how to use these approaches better than uh, we did in the past few years. Can we talk about, we don't have that much time left, but vaccination, anti-vaxxers, um, you know, I guess, and, you know, in terms of the history of public health, there's always been a reluctance whenever there's a vaccine, there's you know, people think that they're being poisoned or there's all kinds of, uh, you know, myths going around and it becomes politicized, but uh, I don't know if it was more so with uh, the COVID vaccine, um, but Let's talk about that. Yeah. I mean, you're completely correct, Catherine, that uh, there is, uh, in the history of the world, um, for the past 200 years, there has always been resistance to new vaccines. And the smallpox vaccine, which was the first mass vaccine introduced, which uh, um, there, were, there were riots in London against the smallpox vaccine. Now, smallpox ended up uh, saving millions of lives worldwide uh, through that vaccine. So resistance to vaccines is nothing new. I think our... Um, challenge in a time of COVID was I come back to our communication and also in honesty about the fact that vaccines also have trade-offs. No vaccine is risk-free. And, and you know, I come back to this, uh, to this odd situation that we found ourselves in where there were these political pressures, these absolutist political statements that were simply wrong, many of them coming from the president, which then public health found itself having to combat by coming up with its own absolute statement. And a lot of the communication on vaccines was 
trust us, this is completely safe. There are no side effects. And, and I think that fed into those who had malintent. And by those who had malintent, I mean people who intentionally wanted to spread, anti, spread anti-vaccine sentiment because most people are rational enough, believe in science enough to still want to get vaccinated, even recognizing that there may be some side effects. So I think our absolutism about how we presented the vaccines played in the hands of those who had malintent and wanted to spread, spread anti-vaccine sentiment, who you call anti-vaxxers. Um, so I think vaccines capture well the whole thesis, which is it was incredible science that got us to the vaccines as quickly as it did. And our job in future is to learn how to take that, to communicate to the public that this is a tremendous advance, that yes, there are risks and benefits, but we have weighed the risks and benefits. The benefits far, far, far outweigh the risks. And as a result, we strongly recommend that everybody gets vaccinated to save their lives and the lives of their loved ones. And that approach, we do have science, for example, that has shown us that uh, when uh, you say that people are much more willing to want to be vaccinated than if they feel like they're being mandated. And these are elements of our approach that we need to learn and tweak. So the messaging is critical. Information, messaging, how we get this information out there. I mean, it, it, it seems to me. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that's that's really the, the piece of all of this. And I always felt even, dur- and I, I don't want to repeat myself, but even during the whole COVID crisis, the messaging was not good. And um, so I, I think that's one of the major problems. And hopefully we do it differently. I hate to say next time, <laughs> um, but... There will be a next time. Whether, there will be a next time. There will be a next time. Yeah. And, and, and you have to be completely candid with you. I, I wouldn't have written a book like this if I didn't think there will be a next time. Now, I, I hope there will not be a next time in my professional life, but there will be a next time, if not in my professional life, and in the lives of the people who come after me. Uh, the book does not look back and does not uh, point fingers, does not say X should have done something differently because it, it rests on a respect for good people doing really good work in difficult circumstances. It simply says it's time for self-reflection so that next time, whenever it happens, we will be, our thinking will have been informed by a careful discussion about how we did this time so that we can do better next time. I think one of the things in the United States, one of our problems is that we don't have a, as Americans don't have a good sense of history, whether it comes to public health or anything else. We kind of like, uh, we, we stay in the moment and we look to the future, but we don't really look at it in the context, whatever the issues are, of history. I, I think we're kind of lacking in that. So we don't know the history of vaccine. I mean, just in terms of what we've been talking about, the smallpox, we eradicated smallpox with a vaccine. I, I bet if you asked half the population, they, they, they wouldn't, would not be aware of that, for instance, or even the polio vaccine. Yeah, which, which gets back to the point you made earlier about uh, us being better at telling the story of uh, public health. And uh, in one of my previous books, uh, which was called Well, What We Need to Talk About When We Talk About Health, the thesis of that book was just this, which is that when we talk about health, we always talk about doctors, we always talk about medicine, we always talk about surgery. And really, it's not what health is about. Health is about the air we breathe, the water we drink. It's about the neighborhood where you grew up. It's about whether there's safety in your environment, whether or not you're at risk from gunfire, whether or not there are parks where you can actually walk, whether or not you can actually have uh, care for yourself when you're elderly. That is what health is about. And that is what we need to talk about when we talk about health. Because if we talk about those forces, we will then, as a society, 
invest in those forces rather than investing only in medicine. And, you know, this is not a an either-or argument. This is an and argument. We, you and I, Catherine, we both want to have a good doctor, a good nurse, a good clinician for when we're sick. But also, we would rather not be sick to begin with. In order not to be sick to begin with, we need to build a society that creates health. And that means talking about all these other structures. And that is what public health is about. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the show today. Um, And I want to mention your book, again, Within Reason, A Liberal Public Health for an Illiberal Time. And I've been talking to Sandre Galia, MD. Could you give us a website or websites we can go to for more information? People can get, uh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the book, the book is available on Amazon. Um, uh, My website is sandrogalea.org. That's my name, S-A-N-D-R-O-G-A-L-E-A. .org, and you can find all this on my website. And I'm also uh, I'm, uh, quite active on LinkedIn, so people can also find me on LinkedIn. Great. Thanks so much. We appreciate, we really appreciate your being on this show today. Lots of good information. Thank you, Catherine, for having me. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Mm-hmm. 